Um, but yeah, it's like maybe you're on foot for a while or maybe you have access to a vehicle. But a lot of the people I've, I've worked with here, have, you know, talk about they're just kind of wandering literally through the jungle, right? If you're from Burma um, or the desert, right? So you're getting through pretty, yeah, scary terrain. You're not sure how long it will take you to get to the camp, but you're aiming in that direction. So that could be part of the, wow. the time frame too, is that maybe people are, are in limbo traveling to a camp for months to a couple of years. Yeah. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of Live an Extraordinary Life. I am your host, Tim Bishop, and this podcast serves as a guide to help you to find what an extraordinary life is for yourself. And today we have a really intriguing story of a guest named Margaret Yap, who has worked with refugee services for four years now, and she's coming onto the show to share her knowledge about what refugees have to go through, about the work that is being done to help them, and to help share some of her perspectives on what is going on in the world. And the reason why I think this is a really valuable podcast is one, I think that it is good to be an informed citizen and it is good to really understand what refugees have to go through around the world and the things that are happening in this world. But two, I hope that this story gives you some perspective in your own life, helps you be grateful for the things that you have, and helps you think more about ways that you can give back and play a part in making this world a better place. So I hope that you enjoyed this interview with Margaret. I really enjoyed the conversation. So here it is. All right, everyone. So today's guest is Margaret Yap. She's joining us today. We're really excited for that. Margaret, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Um, do you want to give a brief intro of yourself and just kind of what you're doing right now on like a Sparknotes version? A couple seconds yeah, for answer. sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, so my name is Margaret. I am from Iowa, but I've been in Minnesota the last four years. And I've since moving here, have been working at Lutheran Social Service in the Refugee Services Program. Uh, my first two years were as a caseworker, and now I'm the volunteer coordinator. So I've been in this position for the last two years. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I wanna I wanna dive right into that because this is I heard about you, and uh, I'm really interested in your work as a like the refugee resettlement case manager. Um, can you give us again, like, sort of the maybe the the title summary of what that entails first before yeah. I dive deeper into asking. Uh, more specific questions about yeah, it? Yeah, for sure. So at LSS, the I mean, the main program that we have is resettlement. So we're working with families who, uh, who have refugee status. They've gone through all the screening with the UN overseas, and we are meeting them at the airport. So we usually find out like two weeks to a month ahead of time that a family or an individual is coming. And literally our first experience with the family, if you know people are listening are from the Twin Cities, is that MSP, our airport, Terminal <laughs> 1 baggage claim number 14, right? That, so Nice. That's my lucky yeah, number. Yeah, so exactly. So we're working with families for their first 90 days in the U.S. Okay. And as a caseworker, so my first two years here, I was you know on the ground helping with a lot of like school enrollments and ESL enrollments, setting up furniture at new apartments, things like that. Um, as volunteer coordinator, which is my current position, I do things like this a lot, right? So I'm talking to people in the community about how to get involved, spreading factual information about what we do, and just, you know, soliciting donations and, and outreach in general. I run our Facebook, follow the <laughs> Facebook, nice. share the link. Social media. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I'm a little more behind the scenes at this point. Okay. That's the overall. Yeah, cool. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. So I want to take it higher level for a second because this is where my brain goes and I, I get curious. So I want to go through the, the process. I assume you know about like the behind the scenes of the entire refugee yeah. process. So taking it yeah. way back to sure. the, I guess the original spot where this all starts would be the refugee camps. And like, I'm curious, I just want to be more educated on why people end up in refugee camps in the first place. And then yeah. if there's a part in the world that are the most prevalent or the people that you've worked with, like where in the world are these people coming from? Yeah, good question. So I'll take it even like a little bit before the refugee camp. Nice, so, sweet. Yeah, from the very beginning. <laughs> so the definition of refugee that, that we use and that's given to us by the United Nations, so this is what's used across the globe, okay. is a, a person who has a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country. So, you know, in Minnesota, we work with a lot of families who are originally from Somalia. So let's use Somalia as an example. A family is within their home country, Somalia, and they leave, they go to a neighboring country, Kenya, Ethiopia, wherever. Once they're there, once they've crossed a border, they find a refugee camp. But you have to cross a border first. So you don't start there, right? So you have to be leaving a pretty dangerous situation. Um, and your fear of persecution is based on part of who you are. So it's your race, your religion, membership to a particular social group that could be like LGBTQ individuals, or your political opinion. So it's, it's not something that you can get away from. It's, it's mm. part of your identity. In the refugee camp, you literally are probably walking up to like a UN building, United Nations building, and presenting yourself saying, I'm unsafe at home, I need to apply for refugee status. That application process with the United Nations takes several years. So you're going through kind of constant background checks and interviews to prove that you are who you say you are. Once that's approved through the UN, then you can apply to come to a place like the United States. You don't have to apply to the US, obviously. There's lots of countries that take in families. Um, mm -hmm. We're one of them, but Canada has a program, Australia, Sweden, many other places. That is another couple of years of background checks. So all in all, from like presenting yourself to getting resettled in a new place, the average time is 17 years. Oh my god. So it's just like gosh. you're constantly going through interviews, medical 17 screenings. 17 years. Yeah, so it's a really long time waiting. Um, and we're not in my my job, LSS is not involved in this overseas process. Okay. We, like I said earlier, get like a month uh, notice that a family's coming. So all of the stuff overseas is done first by the United Nations and then our federal government is involved. So it's like the FBI, mm -hmm. Department of Defense, Counterterrorism Center, like all these different offices do all these screenings for people to prove that they're not like a hazard to the US. They're not coming and they're not going to do harm here, right? They're the people that are fleeing terrorists back home. So yeah, that was kind of uh, a long <laughs> description, but that's, no. that's the gist of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, on average, 17 years. Some people, it's a little faster. Uh, we're working with a woman right now who fled Burma or Myanmar in 1985 and just got to St. Paul this year. So oh my God. I am bad at math, but that's longer than 17 years. That's a lot of um, years. <laughs> yeah. That's almost yeah, 40, so 45 years. So she had her kid 85. in the refugee camp. No, she was 35 in. years. My math yeah. is bad too. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's like the overall scope of it. So there's lots of these different, you know, a lot of people are involved in this background check process before yeah. a family would ever get to the U.S., yeah. But it starts with that family leaving their home country. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't you wouldn't often think about that. I guess it makes sense, but the the fact that you have to travel to even get to 
like yeah. a refugee camp. I feel like that probably is one of the scariest initial parts, right? I mean, you have to just pick up and go. I assume these people don't take much with them when they do when they do that or For anything. Sure. Yeah, I think everybody's story is different. Um, but yeah, it's like maybe you're on foot for a while or maybe you have access to a vehicle. But a lot of the people I've, I've worked with here have, you know, talk about they're just kind of wandering literally through the jungle, right? If you're from Burma um, or the desert, right? So you're getting through pretty, yeah, scary terrain. You're not sure how long it will take you to get to the camp, but you're aiming in that direction. So that could be part of the... Wow. The time frame too is that maybe people are are in limbo traveling to a camp for months to a couple of years. Yeah. Dang, that's that's fascinating. Um what's okay, so you get to a camp and it's like 17 to this one was 35 years. Like mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get a visual for what these camps look like. Like is there is it like a temporary housing kind of thing? Or like I mean for 17 years if you're somewhere like what what are you doing? Like, can you set up shop in that area at all? Are you just working within the camp? Like what would someone's life look like there while they're there for so long? So again, everybody's experience is different. (laughs) Um, For the most part, you're not supposed to work. So it's sort of like being an undocumented person in the United States where you don't really have a work permit. Uh, There might be some jobs available, you know, especially if you're bilingual or you come with a certain skill set, like you could work at the clinic in the camp or be a teacher at one of the schools. So there is definitely some infrastructure that's built up. There's typically English classes for adults, at least part of the year, schools for kids, a small hospital, but a lot of people are, you know, growing their own vegetables. So they're working to just sustain themselves in very basic ways like that. There Mm -hmm. are temporary housing structures that people live in. All those structures are provided and funded by the United Nations. So all camps are funded by the UN. But it's a pretty basic existence, I would say. I wouldn't say it's like super horrendous, but it's not super great either. Um, There's lots online too. So if you're interested in like, or the listeners are interested in a specific area, you can Google that country and see what camps are like there. Because the the camps in in Kenya look a lot different from the camps in Thailand, right? Because of the weather, because Mm. of how long they've been camps. Um, so there's a lot of of different elements at play uh, in terms of like funding and just like length of time that people have been staying. Because if a camp has been around since the 50s, it's going to look a lot more permanent than a camp that's been around since the 90s. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. So you get basic, you know, food rations and water rations and, and a structure to live in. Some people we know will leave the camp and go work at a neighboring city. You're not really supposed to do that, but of course it happens um, mm-hmm. because people want a little bit of an income and just something to do, right? Yeah. If you're in limbo for that long, like it kind of can, I mean, it's boring is like the nicest way to put it. I think it can be, I can't yeah. imagine being in that situation of, of like not being able to work or be in school in the way that I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Boring's like probably a simple way to put it but i'm just just literally sitting here trying to imagine myself in that scenario and i was just like i i don't it's almost like unfathomable thinking about like how i grew up and comparing the two it's really hard to to visualize that's that's totally yeah which is why when people come i mean when you finally make it to the u.s after waiting that long people are really like ready to hit the ground running, like work and school. People want to do all of it right away because you've just been stuck for however many years. 
Um, so you know, we, there's all these rumors in our, in our news and in our government and communities that uh, immigrants and refugees are lazy, that they're just taking welfare from Americans who've been paying into these systems for a long time. And my experience and the experience of most of my, all my colleagues is that that's not, that's not true at all, that, that refugees by definition are like the most resilient, hardworking people you'll ever meet. Um, you know, when we meet a family at the airport, the first question is, okay, where, where are we going? What's my house? Do I have an apartment to live in? The second question is, when can my kids start school, right? People really want kids to be in school right away. It's one of the first things we help families set up. And the third question is, when and where can I work, right? Because people want to be able to support themselves. Yeah. They're not coming. They weren't in a refugee camp by choice. They're not, they are not forced to the U.S. by choice. This is something that they, they've been pressured into by circumstances they can't control. So, yeah, I think that limbo period influences that hardworking, uh, those hardworking personalities that we see all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. And you wonder, yeah, you just wonder where all these stories come from, if they're rooted out of fear or just a lack of understanding. I, I feel like maybe that could be it as well. But I, I'm happy you mentioned that because I, it's always just like, I mean, you figure that all of the national stereotypes are kind of like, okay, this seems like a stretch, but it's good to hear it from your voice, from someone who's like seen it and been through it and, and kind of knows what people are like they've been sitting around for a long mm -hmm. time and they're ready to get here and support yeah, support yeah. their families so then so then you get them for i shouldn't say get them but you work with them for 90 days and yes. that process is like helping them understand like the lay of the land helping them find where they can go to the kids and go to school like it's just just kind of being like the coordinator of all of it and then having some like counseling and guiding guiding along the way exactly yeah so the process is the same for every agency there are four resettlement agencies in Minnesota, and then of course across the U.S. there are you know dozens. Um, we all do the same work. So this is a federal program. It's nationally organized. We have a checklist of things that we have to get done, and it all has a timeline to it. And I'm totally going to butcher these exact <laughs> days, but it's something like by day seven you have to get people connected with public assistance. By day 10, it's you have to enroll adults in English classes. By day 30, kids have to be enrolled in public school. So there's all these, you know, it's a step-by-step -step process to help people get settled. Gotcha. Of course, 90 days is really fast, right? Nine, three months yeah. isn't that long of a time. So a lot of it is connecting people to resources that can go beyond 90 days. If that's, you know, that's the county, that's the public school system, that's adult education centers. And then what I do is try to connect all newcomers with a community group volunteers that the family can refer back to after those three months are up so to ask questions English practice help reading mail things like that um, so yeah it's a lot of guidance we do cultural orientation classes which are you know a series of sort of like classroom setting presentations about you know if you twist your ankle where do you go the ER urgent care your regular doctor <laughs> you know it's like I still am calling my mom about these things like once a week so it's like yeah. all these weird <laughs> These weird systems that the U.S. has that are hard for native-born people to navigate, let alone people who just got here and don't necessarily speak English yet. So we try to do that education, you know, ongoing, of course, throughout 90 days, but also in an organized classroom setting. Yeah. Oh, man. It, yeah, it's like all that stuff that you don't think about people would need help with, yeah. but you're so right. Like, 
your parents, I wouldn't know the answer to a lot of those questions. Right, either. I know. My they other example so, is they seem so like, oh yeah, that's we can figure that out. But for someone who's coming here and has no clue how the system works, yeah, yeah, and people do figure it out really quickly. Of course, like you know, it's it's easier to figure out your junk mail in your new American apartment than it is to like flee your home country. Like that's obvious, but. Yeah, you know, like my other example I always give is, you know, the, that junk mail you get with like the fake credit cards on the front. Oh, like it's yeah. like Chase trying to sell you a credit card. It's like that looks really legit. Like it looks super like I need to pay attention to this piece of mail, but it's just <laughs> junk. And so like we take that kind of, you know, I grew up in the U.S. So I take that for granted that I realize that. Yeah. But a lot of people who are new, you know, that's like a learning process they have to get used to. That's yeah. a silly example, but I think it's a good one for like, okay, there's all these ridiculous things in the U.S. Right, yeah. In every country, there's ridiculous things that, you know, if you grew up there, it's easy, but if you're new, it's it's a lot harder to it's figure tough. out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to I wanna segue into a, like a personal experience question, if you wouldn't mind sharing. You don't have to use obviously any names <laughs> or specifics, but any sort of like story that's really impacted you of like someone that you've helped or that you've worked with? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, in my four years at LSS, I worked with so many families and I want to say too that I'm just the luckiest person ever to get to do this job and have learned. It sounds so cheesy, but I really do learn more than I can do for anybody. Um, you're not supposed to have favorites, right? But one of my favorite families was a family of 12. So oh they had 10 gosh. kids, mom and dad and, and 10 kids. And they were originally from Somalia and had been in a camp in Ethiopia and they came and the dad was just this guy who who immediately did everything he was just he had this personality that was like he's gonna be in charge of of a huge giant like company one day right so he learned how to ride the bus on his own week one he registered himself for school he at one point was like driving in my coworker's car and was, and she was taking him home and he was like, Oh no, 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 that cafe. I've been there already. Like dropped me off there and like jumped out in the intersection. And so we worked with him for 90 days. He, one of his kids moved to Alaska to do salmon fishing. They all got jobs like immediately. And I saw him, you know, after you're here for one year, if you come through refugee resettlement, you can apply for, you apply for a green card. So you, you're okay. still a permanent resident from the beginning, but you apply for a green card after a year. And so they came back to our office because we also help with, with immigration paperwork. And he was going through everything. Everything was fine. You know, it was easy application. And, oh, I should mention when they first came, they stayed in a hotel for a night because their apartment wasn't quite ready. So they stayed in a hotel for their first night. So he came back in after a year and was like, hey, like, what was the name of that hotel we stayed at? For our one year anniversary, my wife and I want to go back and stay at that hotel (laughs) to like celebrate being in Minnesota for one year. And just like hearing that, like that, even just that first hotel room, like meant something to them. And, you know, they came and they were like, yeah, we own five cars and like, we're supporting ourselves completely financially. All my kids are in school or working. Like it was just such a success story. And they were so generous and so sweet about, you know, uh, the help that LSS gave. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. There's families like that where you just see how well they're doing and you're like, okay, you're more successful than I will ever be. Like, (laughs) it's just like, that is what keeps all of us going here. Cause it's a hard job, right? You're witnessing pretty hard transitions, but when you do see families that are doing exceptionally well, um, that is helpful (laughs) to keep going. Yeah. 
that's a beautiful story because yeah, I'm sure it was just a standard hotel that <laughs> we oh, probably it was would, a bad would, hotel. Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't want to go back to, but that was their, yeah. their one year reunion. And yeah. So I like what, and this might be a tough question to answer directly, but maybe I can key it up with something else. But like these, you mentioned it's a tough job and I can imagine it's a tough job. And it seems like there would be a lot of heavy emotions you'd feel on both ends of the spectrum. Like I assume there's days yeah. where there is like heavy joy and gratitude and thanks, and then some d- days where you have to like experience other people's suffering with them. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think when I was, you know, in my first couple of years, when I was doing much more like on the ground direct service, it was, uh, it was an adjustment period to get used to working in this kind of setting. Um, I mean, the truth is that it's not easy to come here through this program, right? You're immediately living in poverty. You're relying on public benefits, which don't even cover basic cost of living in Minnesota. Um, And we have a good system, right? But it's still not enough. So it's just to watch people have to navigate that and to only be, to be limited to what you can do in in your role is hard. Because of course you like, or I, I want to do so much more than I can all the time. Um, yeah, and to know the reality of like less than 1% of people who have fled their home are ever resettled. So even if you're helping, like, like the year I started, 400 people came through LSS through this resettlement program. There are 25 million people with refugee status in the world. So you're helping, it's just like this kind of a bandaid in a lot of ways to what is a global migration problem. Um, but <laughs> that being said, I have like the best coworkers in the world. We all really support one another. Um, specifically, my coworker Loke has just has taught me so much about work life balance and and turning off your phone at the end of the day and going home and taking care of yourself. I think anybody in a helping profession has to learn how to do that mm. um, and how to have boundaries in your own life. So I try really hard to stick to forty hours a week. Um, I try really hard to not check my work email on the weekends. Sometimes I do. Um, <laughs> and the moments like I, I described to that family of 12 and like so many more and just seeing people take care of their families and, and getting to know families too. Like, like I said, I just, I feel lucky every day that I get to have relationships with people from all over the world that are restarting and to witness that, yeah, the joy and the resilience and the hard work of people who, who have been, dealt just an unspeakably horrible hand in life, it, it gets me through. And I, I, you know, I'm so privileged in so many ways and, and grew up very comfortable. And I feel that uh, this job fits my values that are, we're here to take care of one another. And so I'm going to do that in whatever way I can. Does that answer? Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> perfect yeah. answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned a lot there, but I want to t- touch on that you mentioned, you know, so they get kind of, I mean, obviously you get here and it's great and you're happy to be here, but there's still the struggle of like you're being thrown into poverty. Mm-hmm. And I, I, my initial thought was, you know, how, how do they, is there systems in place for like getting them in, like into the community, I guess, or is there certain communities that are forming like even in the U.S. around refugees? Because it's, it's got to be hard to still even like implement yourself into a community that's existed here for so long like life like what does that look like I guess when they're trying yeah. to to just merge the gap between the differences and, and say me a 
kid who grew up in the Minnesota, Minnesota Midwest, as opposed to this person who's just is showing up here. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a great looking question to meet people. Yeah, for sure. So I'll say, you know, in Minnesota, we have really strong Somali communities and really, and Korean communities. So if, and those, those are the two biggest groups coming now. So if you're Somali or you're Korean or Congolese, you probably already know people here that have maybe come a few years prior to you. Mm. You have relatives or friends that are already in Minnesota. So often when we're meeting newcomers at the airport, you know, that day one, there will be a welcoming committee of 40 people that are related to them or know them somehow and are ready to take them in. So there's really strong communities within the Twin Cities, you know, that take care of one another. I think a big part of my job is to do a lot of outreach and volunteer recruiting to make bonds between communities even stronger. So to encourage folks that were born here in the US to reach out to the, their newcomer neighbors. And you know that looks like at first sort of a helping relationship of, you know, the big one is English practice, reading mail, you know, all this skill building that I've mentioned. But eventually it just becomes relationships, um, which is valuable and important and I think necessary for everybody so that we can all start to understand one another more. Yeah. Um, so I think that outreach and, and spreading you know, the true factual information of what resettlement looks like is important, but also to I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of care being done within communities already um, that my job as volunteer coordinator, uh, you know, I, they don't need me to help them. It's already (laughs) happening. Um, yeah. So there's a really tight knit, like refugee community helping themselves. And I would say, I'm sure that's the same for other States as well, but I I only know firsthand about Minnesota. Okay, cool. Um, sweet. So if we were going to touch back on what we talked about a bit earlier saying, okay, at, a global level with, or maybe just a national level, we'll say with everything, there is just general statements that we feel like can tend to be wrong, whether it's about politics or refugees or X, Y, or Z. And I just was curious, like if you said there's a few things that like people should just know at a national level about refugees based off of your experience, what would be some of those things that you would just say um, if someone's trying to just have like an understanding of what's going on? Sure, yeah. So I think the the scope of the program is important for people to know, you know, that the U.S. lets in a certain number of refugees each year, and that number has changed a lot in the last few years under Trump's administration. Every year it's gone down since his first year. So the last year of the Obama administration, we let in 110,000 refugees. Mm. When Trump took office, he immediately cut it to 50. Then the following year it went down to 45,000, then to 30,000. Now this year, fiscal year 2020, it's down to 18,000. So it's gotten really small, really small. And there, like I've mentioned, there's 25 million people with refugee status across the globe waiting in camps. So the number we're taking in is so small compared to like how many people are eligible, um, which is really discouraging and really sad for families who are here who are waiting for their relatives to join them, right? Um, so I think that's an important fact to know that is this is happening now. This program is being cut every year now. And for people who are, are wanting to assist newcomers to advocate to their representatives that the number should go back up, right? <laughs> because these are people who deserve help and deserve a safe place to live. 
Um, and you know, there are big, big rumors that we hear are refugees are unsafe, um, which is factually not the case. Immigrants commit less crimes than native born Americans. That is like a common knowledge. Um, also refugees undergo more screening than any other immigrants led into the U.S. So it's years and years of years of background checks done through FBI, Department of Defense, State Department. Um, so when we hear that, you know, refugees are terrorists, they're going to commit crimes here. My reaction is always like, what terrorist has the patience to wait 17 years to get to the U.S.? Like a terrorist would come in a different way. They wouldn't wait in a refugee camp for that long. Um, and also just, it, it's, it's hard to come here. You know, we, the other rumor we hear is, Refugees get a free car, they get, uh, they don't have to pay taxes. Like none of that is true either. Uh, refugees are connected with public benefit programs that are not specifically for refugees, that they're just available to any low income person in their county. So in Minnesota, that's called MFIP. Uh, it's like our version of TANF. So it's like basic food and cash benefits, but most people are finding work right away. So like within one or two months, people are finding jobs. And then that gets back to the other argument, which is like refugees are taking our jobs. <laughs> so there's all these conflicting arguments. And to that one, I'll say uh, it's also shown that immigration, uh, including refugee resettlement, improves local economies. And I'm not like, super versed on economic stuff, but there's lots of research out there that shows that we need immigrants and refugees if we're going to be like a competitor in the global market in the future, right? So, <laughs> Fancy <terms>. and, <laughs> yes, and I come at this from a human rights perspective, but I know that a lot of people come at it from an economic perspective. So that's something I'm working on is like learning how to talk about that. But okay. I do know that like refugee resettlement is beneficial for our job market. So all of these arguments, I feel like you can kind of throw facts at them and they're disproven, but whether or not people listen to that, you know, you can't control that. So yeah. all I can do is like say what is factual, what I know about these systems and, and hope that it sticks. Yeah. Yeah. The facts are, the facts are good. <laughs> Help people understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the first, first start, I guess, opening your mind and getting some information in there. So right. that's good. Um, well, taking this back to you for a sec, as you think about, well, I'm curious, one, how you even got into any of this work, but also before you answer that, maybe you can just like talk briefly about, I imagine this work's just giving you a lot of perspective as to your own life. And what are those things that you kind of remind yourself now of like, I guess, just things you're grateful for now that you've <laughs> seen where you've grown up as opposed to where you could have grown up? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, my reaction to that is very, like, classic, like, count my blessings. <laughs> um, just realizing, like, how easy I've had it has given me energy to try to make systemic change in whatever way I can. Like, mm -hmm. to know how the system is so set up against people is discouraging, but also I feel like a drive to, like, maybe be a small part of, like, working against that. Um, how I got into this work was I had a very classic, some like meaningful semester abroad in college. So I did a semester in Malta. Same uh, way I started. <laughs> yes, classic. So, I, so Malta is this tiny island nation south of Italy. It's like south of Sicily. And I was there in 2014, my junior year of undergrad. 
And while I was there, there, you know, there, there've been a lot of people leaving the coast of Libya on boats, right? Maybe you've heard about this in the news, like mm. people living from very, leaving from various African countries, you know, 75 people in like a five person boat kind of deal. Um, and many of those boats were trying to get to Italy and Greece, like mainland Europe and accidentally get to Malta. Like nobody wants to go to Malta because it's like tiny, tiny, no resources. But while I was studying abroad there, there were uh, maybe a couple thousand uh, people who were technically asylum seekers at that point. Like they had presented themselves mm. to, to seek asylum. And the group I was there with, we were doing English tutoring at an open center for that community. And so that was my first uh, insight, like uh, firsthand insight into like what global migration looked like at that point. And so uh, it was really mind, like eye-opening. <coughs> I'm gonna cough. Maybe you can cut that out of the recording. <coughs> it's okay. It was really it's, eye-opening. It's, it's Minnesota winter. Okay. It's, it's getting all yes. <laughs> um, it was uh, incredibly uh, life-changing, right? So to see these young men who were my age, who had left their families behind, who had left their friends behind in their home countries, to because they had to, because they were unsafe there. It wasn't like uh this was an adventure for them or anything like it was for me right i was there to like be on the beach and like have a fabulous semester yeah they were in malta because they had to be um and a lot of these young guys were from somalia so as i was there you know a lot of the i was there with a group from my college and many of them were from minnesota and they were talking to these guys and and almost all of them had a relative in the twin cities um wow which was like whoa okay so this is this is happening next door to me you know i i live in a country that is welcoming people that are in this situation so as i was thinking about what to do after graduating i knew i wanted to work in this area somehow ended up at lss and have stayed since then so it was like a study abroad sort of <laughs> experience spiritual experience right but also just like this fits my my value system of i believe we're here to take care of one another Everyone has the right to be in a safe living space. Everyone has the right to an education. So, um, and I've, I've figured out a place for myself for my own skill set to like fit into this work. Yeah. 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 It's so funny because you just talk to so many people that it's, it's just true. For some reason, the first time you go over and you live in a new country, your mindset going in is, yeah, we're going to learn and have fun. But I mean, I, this the same way I walked out of my study about experience like okay the world is a big place and there's a lot going on and <laughs> it mm-hmm. really opens up your mind to a lot of things and yeah for sure so that's really cool and now you know it sounds like this work obviously means a lot to you and yeah. where, where do you think that that deep-rooted like purpose or those deep-rooted values you have of like everyone deserves what was the exact words you use everyone I, uh, I don't know what exactly I said, but something like, I think we're here to take care of one another. Yeah, yeah. I think that I come from a place of humongous privilege, and it's my, my responsibility to use that well. And everyone deserves a safe place to live, and everyone deserves access to education and healthcare and food and a house if they want it. And um, the U.S., in the U.S., there's a lot of money here. And yeah. we can we can sort of reframe how we use it. And, you know, so part of my job is getting donations and getting volunteers from people who have been just as lucky as me 
and sort of you mm. know pushing that, funneling that to people who need it to help them get on their feet. Yeah. Cool. Um, we might as well ask that now. What are like some simple things people can do to help that that maybe have you know been in a more privileged situation and would be interested in helping out? Yeah. So I would say um, for reach out to the resettlement agency that's by you because every resettlement agency is going to have different needs for us right now. You know, honestly, it's financial donations. So we try to funnel financial donations directly to families and pay uh, maybe an extra month of rent yeah. or use that for furniture needs, things like that. Um, we need volunteers. So we need people who are kind of doing what I described of, of helping families get settled beyond those 90 days. So we call them like one-on-one -on -one volunteers. So they'd be meeting with a specific family once a week, every two weeks and helping with basic skill building and just in general being like a welcoming community member. Yeah. Um, but every agency is different. So I would, I would recommend finding out who's close to you, who's working close to you and reaching out to them. Um, but if you're in Minnesota, reach out to LSS. Uh, there's, there's four resettlement agencies in Minnesota and they all do really similar work and everybody's amazing. So we work together really closely. So cool. volunteering, financial donations, maybe supply donations as well. You know, shampoo, brooms, whatever, like basic whatever. stuff. Yeah. So we can stock a house, um, before a family comes. Cool. Yeah. Sweet. I will be sure to put those things in the show notes too. So people can easily okay. see yeah. simple ways, simple ways to help. Um, so a few final questions I got for you. Um, yeah. So the company is called Lutheran social services. So is, is there a faith based like agenda that is at play with Lutheran, like Lutheran social services, or is it just about giving and like the faith aspect of it isn't as involved or I'm just curious. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know, like the roots of this organization or company. Great question. Yeah. So we're a like 5013C nonprofit, Lutheran Social Service. And there's tons of different like lines of service within okay. LSS. So refugee services is just one small one. Um, there's like housing and youth and uh, you name it, tons of stuff going on. Um, and yeah, we the roots are through the ELCA church. So that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Um, so a lot of our supporters are Lutherans, okay. but it doesn't come into play with the work that we do in refugee services. Like most of my coworkers are Muslim. Um, I don't think we have a single Lutheran person in our department. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I speak at a variety of faith groups and community groups. So when I'm going out to speak, I'll often get invites from Lutheran churches, but one of our biggest supporters is the Catholic church. Um, okay. The reason a lot of resettlement agencies are faith affiliated is because prior to 1980, resettlement was done by churches. There wasn't like a government oh, program. Interesting. Okay. So it was like Lutheran churches and Catholic churches were taking in families and others as well, I'm sure, um, were taking in families directly. So like one congregation would sponsor a single family and like pay for everything and like help them get settled. And it was the program was professionalized in, I think, 1980. Exactly. Uh, and then the government got involved because like some churches were doing this really well, but other churches weren't doing it so well. Oh. So I think there needed to be some like system in place. Okay. That's why there's still this like faith affiliation. So like almost all resettlement agencies have some sort of faith thing in their name and yeah. have that, those roots in like church-based work. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Yeah. But we're never trying to convert anybody that's like super <laughs> illegal. We never will do that. If I have a volunteer who I think is like trying to convert someone, I'll fire them. Put them in their place. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I mean it I guess it is like it makes sense a bit. I mean, I grew up in the church and um you know, I guess I, it does seem like the financial giving is part of the, of like being part of a faith-based community and yeah. like from what I've seen. So I feel like it does make sense that they originated from something like that. Cause I don't know how many other systems are in place where like giving like that is just kind of like a norm. Um, right. And it's like so. an organization that people can plug into. So there's like leadership there and like structure right. that can help people um, yeah. serve others. So, and, you know, welcoming the neighbor, Yeah, right? That's right. our big phrase of the year. Welcoming um, the neighbor. We're 2020 or 2019? <laughs> I think that was 2019. So maybe we need a new one for 2020, but. <laughs> it's a good one. Well, it can yeah. go for longer. Yeah. Welcoming yeah. the neighbor. Nice. Um, okay, cool. Well, I, I asked most people this question and I'm curious because you have a, I feel like dual view at life by seeing these people and seeing your own life. But I, I like to ask people like based off of their experiences, like just what do they think are some variables of a good life for themselves? So I guess I could just ask this directly to you saying based on your life from the work you've done and stuff outside of work, what are some variables that you see that you think are really important to just having a good life? Yeah. So Community is the number one for me that I think, you know, we're social creatures and we need people around us that we love and that love us and we take care of each other, um, a purpose. So what I know for myself and what I see with, you know, friends and coworkers that I've met through this job and just in general is that having some purpose to life and that doesn't have to be work necessarily. Right. So I've talked a lot about my job today. Um, but I don't think it has to be that for people, but to have some sort of drive and hope and like a goal that you're looking towards for the right. future, um, I think is part of a good life Yeah. as well as all those basics, right? So you need food and shelter and a healthy body and, and all those things. But once you have all that, I think community and purpose are the big ones for me. Cool. Sweet. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> Um, okay. I have two final questions. Okay. The last one is going forward as you look into like things that you're hoping to get involved in or stay involved in. Um, just like what's on your, what's on your mind. I feel like this is kind of a reflection time of the year because end of the year and yeah. people tend to do yeah. some, people tend to do some next step forward thinking kind for of thing. Sure. And just yeah. curious, uh, what's on your mind for, for stuff that you think you want to keep doing or start doing going forward? So my long-term goal and something I'm, I'm thinking about a little more is I want to get into arts-based community work. So nice. my, my real dream is I, I want to be, <laughs> I want to do poetry. I want to write. Oh, so really? I'm applying to grad school uh, for poetry and I'd like to combine these two things that I am into. So community That's building amazing. and writing and possibly turn that into something in the future. So next first step is go back to school right for a couple of years and then get back into community building work that's amazing we'll Thank start you. writing now yeah cross your fingers oh yeah don't worry. yeah yeah <laughs> like don't wait to go to school the yes. world, need, world needs these poems yeah it's true sweet that sounds really exciting i mm -hmm. look forward to, to hearing about those hopefully we see your poems <laughs> out you. in the world <laughs> cool 
Um, okay. My last question is just a closing message that you would want to want to leave for listeners. Um, it could be anything regards to your work or just things that you've learned or anything on your mind right now. Just uh, a closing statement, if you will, based off the stuff yeah. we talked about today. Yeah. So I guess something I've been thinking about a lot, and this relates to work and, and just in my own personal life is just get in for people to get involved. I think there's no point in waiting to do something that you're passionate about and and there's a lot out there, right? So there's so yeah. much, there's so many ways to plug into whatever you're interested in. Um, oh my God, I'm about to say you only live once, but it's true. <laughs> I can't believe I just said it. Um, you said it's it, true, it's on you air. As you and, can, you can <laughs> and you know, I'm in my mid twenties. I'm feeling very old lately. So you only live once. You have yes, to get out and get involved. You're follow years follow the dream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I was so uh, cheesy, but I meant it. No, it's, <laughs> it's fair, right? There's, there's no really, the reasons that hold a lot of us back, I think are kind of all in our head. Mm-hmm. So it's good to remind True. ourselves to get out there and, and go do the things we want to do. There you go. Like your podcast. Exactly. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. I, I really thank enjoyed you. asking yourself all these questions and it's just, it's for me, awesome to learn about these the work people do and the new experiences they have and how it makes them view the world and um it's just yeah i'm grateful that you decided to to speak with me today yes thank you this is fun thank you for tuning in to an episode of the show today i hope this conversation with margaret really helped you understand better what's going on with the refugees around the world and that these people are really just like me and you and they really want the same things and need the same things as any other human being and we should treat them like that. I also hope that it helped give you a little bit of perspective in your life and helped you be grateful for the things that you have. I often find that when things are going wrong in our lives, it only takes a little bit of perspective to step back and to say, wow, we really have a lot of good things in our life. And once we realize that we have a lot of the things that people around the world want and need, we can start to look outward and see how we can use our gifts to help the world and to help other people who are looking for the same things that we have. So go do some self-reflection. I hope that this episode was something you enjoyed. And as always, go live an extraordinary life.